Welcome to this podcast from the Bay Church. We hope you're blessed by the message. To find out more, please visit our website at www.the-bay-church.org.uk. Right, it is a delight to be in the north of England. And uh, almost, almost a homecoming for you know, many Australians, as you know. Um, if, um, if, if you're an Australian and you have a convict amongst your ancestors, you're royalty. <laughs> you, <laughs> that's the upper crust, you know. <laughs> it's something to be proud about, you know. You're finely bred, you know. <laughs> well, Hazel is too, at least two. We probably all have got some, you know, because you have so many ancestors. But um, on her mother's side, she had a, a great-grandfather who was on the first fleet as a convict. And the woman he married, who became a you know, grandmother multiple generations back, was a, a convict on the second fleet. So she's doubly royalty. And um, <clears throat> on a father, um, yeah, that was a that was a mother's side. On a father's side, four generations back, he was a terrible drunkard. Uh, but he got converted at the Salvation Army Drum in the main street of the city we live in right now. So uh, generations of her family have lived where we've eventually gone to live. The Lord sent us there. She had another grandfather three or four generations back who, there was a, Bap- uh, a German colony in Queensland and they were Baptist of all things and they sent to Germany for a pastor and the first Baptist German pastor in Australia was actually her you know, great, great, great grandfather. So not quite English, you know, don't mention the war. But uh, <laughs> so um, my side, let's see. The Allies came from Buckinghamshire and they were kind of, upper class people I guess, whole long line of military officers and, and vicars of the church and, and there was a bishop in there thrown in for good measure, you know. Uh, kind of they'd be considered the rogues gallery in Australia, you know, that, that lot. But, <laughs> but the originality who moved to Australia, that's a good few generations back now. He was a doctor with 14 kids. So, um, however, on my mother's side, the really classy side, now she came from here. And she was born here, right in this district, and um, she was six years old, 1927, when she came to Australia on a boat. The, the whole ship was full of Salvation Army people who were emigrating. I, I, I can't imagine what it must feel like, that people constantly leaving you, you know, because we, we constantly receiving them, you know. And um, anyway, she did come to Australia as a little girl. And... Um, and normally I don't think that much about my mother. I've got no reason to. Things were so happy, so sweet, a passing, you know, so lovely. Uh, but sitting here today, I just found myself during worship just remembering things about my mother, you know. So anyway, I might as well talk about it for a minute because she did live an exemplary Christian life. This is an astounding thing, really. Um, she, um, her mother died when she was 15. Her mother got pneumonia. They lived in Maitland in New South Wales, just near Newcastle in New South Wales. That was all a coal mining area on the Hunter Valley. And uh, they were coal miners. They'd been coal miners here. And um, so her mother, her grandmother, sorry, my, my grandmother died of pneumonia. So that left my mother to raise, as a 15-year-old, her seven brothers and sisters. The twins were 18 months. And she raised those. And then she raised her own six kids, almost single-handedly too. Um, my mother always felt she had no gifts. That was Salvation Army people. She had no abilities, you know, she couldn't speak. So she always felt very inadequate. But she decided as a young Christian that because she had no gifts, 
the only thing she could do in church was be friendly. <laughs> and it turned out she, she had this astounding love. Um, it, it stood out, even as a you know, retired pensioner, old lady with grey hair, she never seemed like an old person, not to anybody. She was so astoundingly accepted and her reputation so widespread and yet she didn't do anything. She, she never made speeches. She was a member of a church. And, um, but her love was deep and even as an 88 year old she was still catching two buses and crossing the whole city constantly, regularly, so that she could read books to Muslim children who were in, uh, in, um, in a detention. And um, the whole Muslim family that lived next door to her adopted her as their grandmother. And, uh, you know. So she had this unusual touch on people and um, she never drove a car. She never learned to swim. All Australians learned to swim, you know. But, so basically, she could sing the most amazing alto voice. So she always sang in the church choir. She never missed a church meeting. One of the remarkable things about her was her, the love and support she gave for every leader that was ever appointed to the church. Because Salvation Army, you know, they come and go. Their officers would stay a year and then, you know, two years, never that long. It didn't matter whether they were good, bad or indifferent, you know, exceptional officers or pretty average with it. Didn't matter they could preach or couldn't preach. She would just love them, serve them. You would never hear a negative word, a critical word. But she... Um, she just loved, you know, astounding, really. Anyway, um, and the interesting thing is all the kids she raised, all her brothers and sisters, went on to be really quite accomplished people, um, not only, you know, educated and with quite significant positions, but outstanding Christians and Christian leaders, and her own kids. And uh, some of her own kids are amongst the most senior leaders in the Salvation Army today in, a, in Australian parts of the world. And um, I might have been too, except I left, you know, did something else. But um, when she died, the commissioner of the Salvation Army, who had never met her, but who within a year or two later became general of the Salvation Army based here in London, the commissioner cancelled, because she'd, he'd heard of her, cancelled all appointments for the day, got in a plane, came to the funeral. So I think, what was it, you know? I think about my mother. Um, just a very ordinary person, any of us sat in church, yet the life counted. And this is, of course, this is, of course, what it's meant to be like for every Christian. The thing that she had that never, never strayed was that, that love in which uh, she, she never took her love and affection from the local church or the leaders of the local church or anything the local church was doing. And... Um, Anyway, I thank God for it, and, and hopefully I've got a dose of that myself. Anyway, she was an English woman, and she came from right here in the north of England, right? Good stock, right? It must be in you. Yeah, you. So, thank God, you know. The, there are still northern English people, and they're still breeding and raising kids. And, you know, the world's not lost, right? <laughs> They'll always be in England, you know? <laughs> and uh, except when it comes to the cricket, Australians don't talk like that, you know? But <laughs> anyway, dear friends. Hopefully that's a, a bit of a launching pad, just thinking about my mother's love, for what I really want to talk about today, which is the kind of love that is meant to be in us, but of course it comes from the Lord. Scripture says, the love of God 
is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And a casual reading of the Bible, you might think, well, when you got saved, it just meant God loved you. Now, it means a great deal more than that. And our hearts change. And uh, he puts love in us that we never had before. In fact, Scripture also says uh, we love because he first loved us. In other words, our whole capacity to love, not just him, by the way. Because Scripture says if anyone says he loves God but does not love his brother, the truth is not in him. So this love shed abroad in our hearts with the Holy Spirit is, is meant to grow and go out from us and touch huge numbers of people in quite a profound way. But when it's stunted, when Christians remain inward looking, you know, uh, concerned more about their own, you know, immediate concern, worries, you know, live selfish lives, when they don't really get a really, real dose of Christ, you know, that love is stunted. The love's there. There's no, there's no question we have love in churches. You know, there's more love in churches than, than down the local club or the local school. Um, no, churches have love in them. But our love still fails and it's, and it's still possible for love to grow cold in the wrong circumstances. And frequently, you know, churches go through struggles. The truth is that struggle, those struggles are meant to prove your love, not diminish it. And every one of us needs, really, to be profoundly taken hold of by the love of Christ. I remember when I was converted, it was a, it was a profound conversion. I was 15 years old, and I knew I was saved. You know, I didn't just become a Christian. I was saved, you know. You talk about life turn. And from that point on, I knew who I was. I knew, I knew whose I was. And uh, began to pray and read the scriptures. And I mean, you know, these are just little things at first. You sit in your bed at night and read a chapter of the Bible and pray a few minutes, you know. And, but I tell you what, it's your launching pad. And um, when I was baptized in the Holy Spirit, those six years later, another, you know, it, it's like being catapulted into another whole realm. It's, it's like being born again, again. And, uh, and this time really did feel possessed of the love of God. Held, so held, so secure. It was pretty astounding. I think that was the most obvious outcome for me. And um, hopefully there's been growth ever since. I remember the day I turned 40. I was looking forward to it. You know, I was, I was so excited about it. I was going to turn 40 soon because I'd always heard life starts at 40, right? You, you've heard that, haven't you? Well, I must have believed it, right? So I'm, I'm looking forward to this day. And finally the day dawns and I wake and, oh, thank God, you know, I'm 40 at last. And I rolled out of bed. Well, you want to go that way or the other way, right? Because you're going to go, <laughs> you're going to hit 40 either way, right? You might as well be happy about it. So I, I rolled out of bed onto my knees and thank God I was 40. And then I said, Lord, I want you to give me a birthday present. I said, I, and it's this, I don't feel I love Jesus enough. I said, would you give me a more profound love for Christ? Wow. Now, you never notice the outcome in a minute, right? But over the next five years, as I look back on it, no. It, it was really, really good what happened, I felt. The, that, the, the, you know, the passion of the heart to me deepened. I do remember around about that time in my house one night, I'm reading this, uh, the Gospels, and I come across this story of the, the man born blind who was more than 40 years of age. And I'm thinking, oh, it's me. 
you know. <laughs> I realized, <laughs> I realized despite all these years of Christianity and Bible reading and prayer, and I, and I was now a preacher and all the rest, I was still the man born blind. I was still blind, you know. And cried out to God, you know. I opened my eyes. Anyway, thank God bit by bit, all these, these prayers have an effect and they get you somewhere. And probably all the only point I'm trying to make in the end is that you are meant to more and more take hold of some degree of profundity in love, in getting a hold of love and being in the heart and walking in it. And I don't know how my mother got it, but she did. And, um, and she, wasn't, she didn't live an easy life. She, she had a tough life, really, all but the last 30 years. And um, yet you'd have never known the love was such, you know. And um, I've visited my, my mother's grave a couple of times since. I never stay long, never stay a minute, you know. Uh, but I do remember once I went back there and I, and I just thanked the Lord and remarked to the Lord on the kind of love my mother had. And I said, Lord, I, I need a bigger dose of this yet, you know. And so we keep pursuing it. And because um, scripture says, this is love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us. And gave his son to be a propitiation for our sins. And there are a lot of people, was it you the other day said, someone said that, you know, often we convince people of the gospel, but don't convert them. Was you, you said that, and, and this is true, there's a lot of people sitting in church who they believe the truth of what's said, but it hasn't, hasn't really turned their lives. Yeah, they might be better people, they might be cleaner, because they've got better beliefs, they'll live a bit better. But the gospel is meant to give you a genuine conversion to Christ. Change your heart. And you're never the same again. And if you haven't really come to the place where you feel you know the Lord and you walk in that love and you're possessed of that love, well, it means you... you you, you just got to, you've got to seek the Lord for a grace. It's time to you know, lay it all before him and say, Lord, enough's enough. I want more of you. And all this is meant to bring us to a place where we're not independent any longer, but really glued together. The, you have a local church like this one, but ultimately the believers right across the city are meant to have such a love in the heart that comes from Christ, they are really and genuinely glued together. It's a holy glue. Yeah. And there's, there's nothing else does it. Like putting on a good program, like you know, a big Bible conference and getting all the believers to it and having the world's greatest preachers and, and soloists and you know, giving out free books and free lollies to the kids and like getting everyone to sing off the same song sheet doesn't knit the hearts together. I mean, we've tried all these things from the year dot. Program doesn't do it. But in the meantime, we have to keep the people together and keep teaching them and keep harnessing their prayers, you know. Like, yes, the gospel still goes out, but the ultimate expression of the church is this one where the love in the heart is so profound, we just belong. And it doesn't take anything to get us together. Um, we're there, and, and we're in it. And... Um, we, we're looking for that all the more. These are the days in which the Holy Spirit is moving the church all across the world more and more in this direction of our lives being glued together 
by the Holy Spirit. Now it can be taught in different ways, but the classic way to teach this, because if you're going to teach anything, you've got to have a vocabulary and you've got to have analogies. You know what I mean? You've got to have words to describe it and you've got to have stories to illustrate it. And fortunately, the Bible gives us words and illustrations that are very helpful. And the beautiful thing about it is they're drawn from the very nature of God. Of course, we say that God is, a God, is God in Father and Son. Now, here's God, Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yes, he's three, not two. And actually, it's very, very important that God is three persons. You know, some people, you still occasionally come across people who, you know, think God must be one person. But, but foolishly, they don't understand that if God was only one person, he couldn't be God. It is not possible, for, for reasons that are almost beyond our ability to explain, but it is actually not possible to be an eternal and perfect and holy God. It's not possible for him to be eternal and not be at least three persons. He could be four, but he has to be at least three. And it's not possible for God to be holy. He can't be a holy God unless he's at least three persons. To start with, he says, God is love. Not possible if you live alone. Remember, he's lived alone for eternity. But he was not alone. He lived in community. Fullness of joy. The Father loved the Son. The Son loved the Father. The Spirit loved. They loved the Spirit. See, it, it's not just that God is a very complex being. He lives in a holy community. And if he wasn't living in community, he couldn't be holy. You can't define holy and leave out relationships. It's super critical you understand this because you'll never understand the church if you don't understand this little piece of information about God. If God didn't live in community, and you cannot create community with two people. You know the old saying, two's company, three's a crowd? <laughs> See, if you've only got two people, it's easy to deceive yourself. You've got, you haven't got a third person to compare that one with. You know, you might, if there's only one woman in the world, you just love her. Then some gorgeous sort comes along, <laughs> and you, you're not so sure anymore, right? And, and for women, you know, you think he's a gorgeous hunk until... Suddenly, you know, he's far more of a gentleman, you know. <laughs> this, this tests us, right? But, it, but it's more than that. Uh, yet, two people can be self-deceived. It's when three people live together that you begin to be real community or this thing's going to blow apart. And the, the astounding thing about the Holy Trinity is that no two of them kind of have something special going between them that leaves the other one out. So do you see what the, the secret of holiness is there and, the, and the, the purity of that community is there is such harmony, there is such unity, there is such oneness and there's never a shadow of doubt. There's never, Never does a shadow cross the mind of any one of them that is an independence. 
They so walk together. So that's what it takes to be a holy God. And that's why God must be a holy trinity. It's why he must be three persons in one God. And as it turns out, unless you are plugged into each other, you are not holy. If you as a believer in Christ only come to church because you think, well, yeah, I'm a Christian, so I must go to church, worship God, you yeah, must give in the offering, you're missing something. Yeah. You're missing the bigger part of what it's about and you'll find you're not as clean, you're not as pure as you, yes, you've been washed in the blood and your sins have been forgiven and you're the Lord's and your name's written in heaven, but there's a much higher level of being clean. And uh, I'll demonstrate this or illustrate it. I, I walked with a sp spiritual father for a lot of years. And, well, the background of this was I was already in my 40s. Let me see, it was 1994, so it was 42. 94? Yeah, 42. Um, and I didn't know I needed a spiritual father. Now, I had by this time a church of, you know, some hundreds of people. And I had staff, pastors, I had elders and deacons and... Uh, you know, we had a pretty good thing going on, lots of baptisms and good worship and admissions and had a good wife and kids and, you know, um, you know, you think you had it all. And we're in a denomination, so you think you've already got all the relationships you're supposed to have, right? Because I was very honouring of denominational leaders, surrounded by all these other leaders. You're accountable. You've proven yourself to be trustworthy. You've got spiritual sons in Asia who look to you as a spiritual father and you're not thinking there's more. I didn't know I needed a spiritual father and honestly, a kind of an Australian bloke isn't really into the touchy-feely stuff, right? Yeah, I didn't know how the palms feel, you know, but <laughs> we're probably all pretty much the same, right? And uh, nice to each other, but it's a little bit arm's length, that, you know, unless your best mate's down the pub kind of thing. Well, <clears throat> well, mateship is a big thing in Australia, and it goes right back to those convict years. <coughs> that, that whole notion of, of being there for your mate, you know, that, 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 did so, that, that stood Australian soldiers in such good stead through all those wars, uh, that, and, that was, and that worked so well all through rural Australia where you, you were remote, and you had to rely on each other. And um, you had to be innovative, you know. You wouldn't survive. That all went back to those convict years. So bred something good. But even that doesn't get into the church somehow. Funny thing, it stops at the door, you know. Maybe it's the Lord that stops it at the door because he's going to do something genuinely spiritual in our hearts. Well... I wouldn't have thought I needed a spiritual father and didn't really know, you know, such a thing existed. The Lord had to get me by the scruff of the neck and stick my nose in it and not let me out of it. And so he um, connected me with his American, Chuck Clayton, and he was 10 years older than me. So there's every reason why I wouldn't really relate, you know. And, uh, and he was very Southern and, um, and he, he came carrying a fair bit of, uh, you know, directness and authority. And yet there was something about him. You invite him into the church for a week and it was like a vacuum cleaner sucking up all the rubbish, you know. And, um, and the Lord said to me, 
that I was to connect with him. I started getting lots of dreams. You know, I had one dream in which I was wearing his hair. He had red hair. I got this. <laughs> you know, what's the Lord saying? You know, he's, you, you're to be under him. He's your covering. And um, so I, and the Lord told me, go visit him, stay in his home. He's, he's made mistakes in life and learn from them. And I want you to learn from them because I don't want you making the same mistakes. And so I went and began to visit him. And every year I'd go and he'd come visit me. But whilst in theory we had this now relationship where he was my spiritual covering and he was my apostle and he was my spiritual father, emotionally, and whilst I liked him a lot and he liked me and he would visit and preach and it was all good, there was still that sense in which you kept him kind of half at arm's length. You know, you, you weren't fully in it emotionally. It, it was, you know, important and, and now we'd improve the organizational chart of the church at another box, you know, spiritual father. But that's about as far as it went. And it went like that for eight years where you, in, you enjoyed the ministry and the visits and all the rest, but it hadn't gone beyond pretty much any other relationship of convenience, basically. But one night in a prayer meeting, I mean, one of my guys felt he was to pray for seven days, not sleep, pray seven whole day, nights and days. And I'm thinking to myself, man, he's going to, by day two or three, he's going to look like a dead dog, you know. But, but actually, he was bright as a button all the way through. He did go home, get a shower, come back once a day, you know. But um, I decided to pray with him the last night. So <laughs> night number seven at Saturday night, just the two of us, we pray all night long. The wonderful thing about prayer meetings where there's only two people is that everybody knows whose turn it is to pray next, right? <laughs> they're, they're the best. They just keep rolling, those prayer meetings. No silences. <laughs> and uh, you try it. Anyway, we prayed on, and about 5.30 a.m., I'm praying away. And when I finish, he said, his name was Michael, he said, John, while you were praying, the photo of Chuck, to me, just stood out off the wall. And he said, I feel the Lord is saying, this man means so much more to us and he has a great deal more to offer us. But I have to be honest, I, I just couldn't see it. I thought we'd already heard all his sermons and received his prayers and, and I didn't think there was any more there. But the astounding thing was, that was the beginning of the year 2002 in which we, our church, had three major breakthroughs in the Holy Spirit in the course of that year. Huge breakthroughs, every one of them, a big move of the Spirit. And the middle one of those was when Chuck came, preached for seven hours on the road to sonship. And our hearts changed, not by anything happening except sitting there and listening. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden I realized my heart toward Chuck was totally different. I find myself in the middle of the meeting and it's Saturday afternoon. I mean, you know, it's usually the sleepy session, right? And, um, and all of a sudden I'm sitting there thinking, I just, just full of love for him. And saying to myself, I belong to him. And he belongs to me. And Hazel and I, we belong to him. And he and Karen, they belong to us. And all the people in that church, all of us, we belong to him and he belongs to all of us. And, and you know, I wasn't, this was all just spontaneous thought. 
What I didn't realise was that in that moment in the meeting, the Holy Spirit had moved through our hearts and changed all our hearts. What we experienced was a release of what you might call the spirit of sonship. Let's say an anointing, and you could give it different names. The spirit of sonship, or you know, the love of God shed abroad in our hearts. But um, from that point on, no man having done anything any different, from that point on, my relationship with Chuck was a totally different thing. But not only that, the relationship of people in my church to me was totally different. And one man in particular was on my staff. His name's Tony. He's a pastor, and I make Tony famous all over the world. And um, Tony had been, by that stage, already working for six years on the staff. And when, we, you know, when we'd called him, we needed a pastor. And he, he'd been in our church a few years. He'd come from the Salvation Army too. Although prior to that, his family had been Lutheran. And, um, and he had a big heart and loved people and had been doing you know, ministry studies. And so we promoted him into the church ministry. But what I didn't realise was Tony had a terrible condition in the heart we, we call now an orphan heart. He was a guy who could be offended really easily. And he'd grown up with a father who all kept, kept saying, oh, you're useless, you know. Now, it was just Australian kind of backhanded humour. His father didn't mean any harm, but, you know, kid be trying to do something, oh, you're useless, give that in to me, I'll show you how to do it, you know, kind of thing, you know. Probably the English are a bit like that too, right? Yeah. So it was kind of like backhanded, you know, good-natured humour, but Tony never heard it that way. And for him, it was like the death knell, his father constantly saying, you're useless, you're useless, you're useless. And he grew up believing he was useless, that he was of no worth or value. He grew up believing he would never achieve anything in life. He, he grew up believing that nothing ever did was good enough, so why bother trying? And so he, he was very jovial, very laid back, very casual. He'd always come late to meetings and then he'd leave early to make up for it, you know. Like just wander in casually, take no responsibility. End of a meeting and you've got a bit of a clean up to do and Tony's disappeared, you know. And not only that, he'd never come near me. I'd, I'd have to go find him if I wanted to talk, you know. You know, because he was avoiding me. Why? Because a person with this kind of heart, now he was an extreme case, but there's a bit of it in quite a few people. Yeah. Uh, that kind of person finds it difficult to relate to, to an authority figure, an authority person, right? Because I was the leader, he'd always avoid me. Yet he had such a big pastoral heart, care for people, pour all his hours into trying to help people. He's a real pastor. But so that was a big problem for him. And then he'd take offence so easily. He'd, offence would hit him so hard, he'd have to call in and say he was sick for three days before he could turn up with a smile and act cheerfully again. That was a pretty serious condition, right? I'd never come across it. Well, probably had, but didn't ever recognise it. Finally, here we've got a case of someone with a heart that's been so kind of warped and twisted and wounded. And, and um, what do you do? It's actually fairly hard to heal people of an orphan heart. And, but I've got a few kind of guidelines, rules of thumb. And in fact, if you get my book, The Spirit of Sonship, there's a whole chapter on it. But basically, what very often happens is with church members who have this kind of condition where something in their upbringing has, has caused them to feel, you know, very insecure, not trusting of authority, all that. They'll, when they first join the church, they think, oh, it's a wonderful church, you know, happy place, full of love. But within a year or two years, they're leaving and there's no love in this place and it's all the senior pastor's fault, right? That's, yeah. 
because it's always the authority figure that they set the blame on. It's always you that done the wrong thing. And so and Tony was very much like this. And one day he came to me full of accusation about you've done this and you've done that and you, you know. And uh, I said to him, look Tony, I said maybe it's true and maybe it's just your perceptions. I said, but I said, well, tell you what we could do. We could call in the other staff, the other fellows, and, and they could sit here and you could tell them uh, all these things and we could let them decide whether you're right, whether it's you or me. But, he, but I said, I think if we do that, you're the one more likely to get hurt. <laughs> and he said, oh, I think you're right. So we agreed, the two of us keep talking about it, but that's when I had to really level with him. At last I had this chance to really level with the guy. And I said to him, look, Tony, you've got this really, really big heart. And I said, that, that heart is just full of good things, but there's a part of that heart, like a slice of the pie, that's got things in it that are not good. And I said, in there, you've got independence and cynicism and pride. I didn't know it, but by the Holy Spirit, I was naming the three key things that crop up, you know, and that really were in his heart. And he kind of slumped and he said, yeah, you're right, and, and I don't know what to do about it. But he, but he would pray. He did believe God, and he went home and poured some days into prayer, crying out to God. And the Lord gave him a revelation. Next weekend, he comes, sits right behind me in church. This is, this is before the sonship thing got released in the church, right? Just a few months before. Sits behind me in church, and he seemed to be happier, you know? And he told me he'd had this revelation in prayer. And when he told me what the revelation was, I'm thinking, what's the point of that? You know, like... That's not what he needs. Well, the revelation the Lord gave him was of the importance of apostles being restored to the church and of the supreme importance of there being authority. That there had to be a leader with authority and that this was supremely important for the work of God if God was going to take the church where it had to go. Well, of course, it was what he needed. Here's me thinking, oh, why didn't the Lord tell him something about himself? You know, but no. Uh, the, the orphan heart always struggles with authority. So the Lord gives him a good, really good revelation of its importance and so he began to appreciate me more. But a few months later when Chuck was there and began teaching and my heart changed towards Chuck, Tony was totally delivered, set free. And for the first time he came to me, he came to me just beaming. I'd never seen such a happy Tony. Arms around me. You know, and basically Tony had become a son. And from that point to this, Tony's heart's been for me. And, um, you know, so the grace of God, you know, does pretty astounding things. But in the end, he's at work trying to get all of us to find each other in the heart and really know that we belong. And, you know, the barriers go and the offences go. He'll clean it all out. And uh, you've, got to, you've got to want him to. That'll speed the process up, you know. Now... I said that for God to be holy, he must live in community and be three persons. But the interesting thing is, in terms of his revelation to the human race, what we call, you know, the revelation of holy scriptures over thousands of years, all the things that have happened, we, we refer to salvation history, you know, beginning in the Garden of Eden and tracing its way down. Do you know the Old Testament leading to the New is basically the, the record of the bloodline of one man? And that one man is Jesus. And any time you see genealogies and all kinds of things in the, in the Old Testament scriptures, 
They're, they're basically tracing the significance ultimately of the birth of one person. What we call salvation history. And it, and it flows, you know, through Noah and Abraham and David and the prophets and all the way down to Christ. Ultimately, Christ comes and brings us the really big revelation of what God's like. All these prophets taught us things about, about the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the mercy of God, the love of God, all kinds of things. You know, the laws of God. But when Jesus came, what we discover is God is God in Father and Son. You know, Hebrews 1 in times past, God has spoken to us in various ways and through many prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Come on. So Christ brings this ultimate revelation of the nature of God. And from this point on, we get more and more information, not only in the Gospels, but also in the epistles, about God the Father, God the Son. And what you notice is this. That even though the Godhead is three in one, and there's a relationship obviously between the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Bible doesn't tell us anything about it. And there's a relationship between the Holy Spirit and the Son, and the Bible tells us a little bit, not much. But about the relationship between God the Father and God the Son, the Bible is, is a huge source of information. In other words, the revelation that God has chosen to give us in the gospel is about that relationship. Guess why? Because you and I are called into a relationship with God through his son and what is meant to be formed in us is the image of the son of God and that means you're meant to have the heart of God's son in you and the heart of God's son in you is properly formed not just by how you feel about God, but by how you feel about your leaders in the church. In other words, the rubber really does hit the road. Wow. Hmm? And this is why scripture says, if anyone says he loves God, but does not love his brother, the truth is not in him. And it turns out, yes, there are many brothers and sisters in the church. The term brother refers to every last one of us. But it turns out that there's, the love of one brother is the litmus test of whether you love the church. See, any liar can say, I love God. Because we have a scripture that says, if anyone says he loves God but does not love his yeah. brother, the truth is not in him. So he's a liar. He might not know he's a liar, but he's not speaking the truth. Well, the same thing if somebody says, oh, I love the church. No. If someone says, oh, I love the church but they don't love their brother. They don't love the church at all. But it turns out there's one brother in the church who happens to be the test, the real test of whether you love the church and therefore whether you love God. And guess who that brother is? It might sometimes be a sister, but that's not the point. Who is this person that is the test? as to whether you love God, love the church, and love the brethren. Which person? Of all the ones we're surrounded with. Anybody know the answer? It happens to be the one that the Lord has placed over you in the Lord. The brother 
that you're meant to honour as leader and serve as leader and follow and learn from. In other words, you, for a lot of people, that's your pastor. Or it might be, there might be several pastors. It might be some, not a pastor, but you know. The fact is, every Christian is meant to recognise themselves as having a leader. So whether we teach in terms of how to be a good follower, a good disciple, how, how a spiritual person should follow a leader, or whether we teach with a different vocabulary and say how to be a son to a father, how to be a spiritual son in the house of God, let's be honest about it, we are talking about the same thing. So anybody that doesn't like the language of fathering and sonship, you are not let off, thank you very much. No, you're called to be a follower. And a follower, moreover, is a disciple. And to be a disciple, be very clear about what this is, it is to be an imitator. This is why various translations of the Bible will say, some of them will have Paul saying, follow me as I follow Christ, and other translations will have it as imitate me as I imitate Christ, and it's the same concept in the Greek, same concept in the teaching of Jesus. It's us English speakers who get mixed up and you know, separate these kind of things. To be a follower of Christ is also to be a follower of your leader. All, look, all things being equal, presuming that your leader is following Christ and has become a pretty good example and is hearing the Lord and has the truth, no. Look, look, our leaders are faulty. Uh, I don't know about you, maybe, yeah. Alan, but I'm faulty, right? I'm faulty. I'm not promising anyone that I can't make a mistake. You know, in, in, I'm talking about the church at home. But it isn't really the point. Doesn't matter what pastor you have, will, will they make a mistake? Well, sooner or later they might. But it's what happens then that counts. Is this person humble about it and, and do they learn from that mistake? And, you know, they're able to say, man, that was a mistake, you know. And, uh, you know, let's have another go. In other words, are they honest and down to earth and are these real people? And no, they really are following the Lord, you know. Well, in which case you've got someone you can trust, thank God. And, um, and if the Lord's appointed them, I remember, I remember an American fellow came to my church once and he preached um, how, a, a message, how to follow a spiritual leader. And uh, his, his answer to that was, well, one step at a time, because very often the Lord tells them take a step and they take that one step and so you take that step too. And, and they haven't got a clue where they're going. A bit like Moses in the desert, you know, they wandered 40 years. Moses didn't know when when the cloud was going to lift and they'd move the next day or not, you know, but, you know, Moses moved, we move, you know. And uh, so you've got to be big hearted enough and so full of love that you enjoy the journey. The Lord's given us a leader. Let's do what scripture says. Scripture says the, the elders who serve, who serve you, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching, let them be considered worthy of double honour. See, it's got nothing to do with whether you see them as worthy of double honour. The scripture says, let them be considered as worthy. And a, and a strange thing happens with honour. It's, it's, it's weird, but it, it has, 
it has a power dynamic to it. It has a power quality. There's something in it that... Um, Look, let's use a different illustration. If you're raising kids, when you show love to your kids, oh, they grow, you know? They feel secure. They get a sense of identity. There's confidence about life. Particularly when dad does it. When dad puts love into kids, they get a clear sense of who they are and they carry a feeling that they have permission to succeed in life. That comes from dad. Security. Where did it come from? Dad believed in them. See, when, when dad believes in his sons and daughters, they grow. Well, friends, it turns out that when church members give honor to their leader, the leader grows. And the growth is real. We're not talking puffed up. Here's what happens. God supplies a leader. And they look to us pretty ordinary. Like Chuck... Chuck looked to me really ordinary in those first eight years. Not too ordinary, like he knew more than me, he'd been places, he had authority, he could come in as a visitor. It was a blessing, but for me, it was only like this big. The truth is in the spirit realm, he was huge. You couldn't see it, you couldn't feel it, and you couldn't receive it. It, it was not made available to you by the Lord, the Lord blanked it off. It's like one of the, you get into your computer and here's your screen and the very button you're trying to press is greyed out. You can click on it all you like and it won't go anywhere. What, do you, what can you do sometimes to get this button to stop being greyed? You know, you ever had that frustration? And you're trying to find, well, there's a whole, let me tell you, let me be really blunt with you folk today. There's a whole lot of stuff in the spirit realm that is greyed out to you. There it is, it's on the screen, the word is correct, it's supposed to be available, but the wretched thing's greyed out. You, and you can knock on heaven's door for that all you like, and it's not yours. But it's meant to be yours. Because that thing only turned, that button only turns from grey to black under certain circumstances, and those circumstances will always require love and relationship. So, Chuck, eight years it's greyed out to me. So greyed out, couldn't even see it, wasn't even on the page. Until the Lord changed my heart, and I just loved him. And guess what? When that happens, the Lord opens the tap. There isn't a miracle you have to call it a faucet, right? You call it a faucet. Anyway, he opens the tap. Stuff starts flowing. It was there all the while. I didn't realize how rich. Two things further in that bit of story, and I've got to quit. Uh, th this is a great message, actually, but it takes about seven hours. I'm so sorry. I just, and I'm about to finish because it's a cup of tea time, right? Yeah. So what, what happened in this relationship with Chuck? Because I walked, I walked with Chuck another 10 years. And it was astounding where this went. But first of all, after about three or four years, the Lord put me through a test of the heart. I have to warn you, there are always tests. Why? Because the Lord wants to give you more. He wants to ungray a few more buttons. And the test was this, I was in Chuck's house, Hazel was with me, it was about six in the evening and we had to go out to a midweek meeting so we'd get dressed up, come downstairs to the kitchen to get the cup of tea. Karen's in the kitchen and then Chuck wanders in. So I'm here all dressed and there's a counter in the middle of the room and Hazel's here and Karen's here and Chuck walks in and Chuck says something to me or to us that sounded really demanding. It actually sounded offensive. It sounded like he'd crossed a boundary 
and was kind of making a demand that he really had no right to. It was almost like you stepped into your big private space. And it seemed just really out of order, but because you can't ever be sure you've heard someone right or that even if you did, that you knew what they meant. I, I didn't react, you know, just act pleasant, but it seemed really offensive. Like, you know, and you'd think, he shouldn't have said that. But we didn't say anything, just all cheerful, drink a couple of things. We go on our road, down the road. But I said to Hazel, when we got alone, I said, I don't know what Chuck meant back there. You know, it didn't sound good, but I said, I, I refuse to take offence. I said, he's been so good to us, you know, so generous, open doors, cares about us. I said, I'm, I'm going to believe the worst, I'm going to believe the best. So I paused and prayed, and I spent a few, good few minutes in prayer just really thanking the Lord for Chuck. Thank the Lord he put Chuck in my life. Thank the Lord for Chuck's love, Chuck's service, you know, all the, all the good that had come. And I said to the Lord, I don't care what he said, I refuse to take offence. I said this to the Lord. We go home that night, and it was like stepping into another level of the heavenly realms we'd never known before. And without a word being said, the depth of relationship and of heart trust, that sense of intimacy between people who trust each other, know each other, walk together, that had gone to another place altogether. And that's when I realised I passed a test. Offence is often, you know, uh, the thing that will get thrown up in a test. You be careful. You guard your hearts because... It's, it's not always the devil, it's sometimes the Lord that will cause you to be offended about your leader and you have to choose right despite your struggles of feelings. The trouble with the people with an orphan heart is they have big feelings, big struggles. It's all amplified, which means if you got that, don't leave. That's what they do. They leave and go somewhere else and leave and go somewhere else. Don't leave. You will never heal an orphan heart if you run from the relationship. You've got to stay put no matter what the pain and work it through. Recognising your condition, you're halfway to healing and then you've got to walk through the pain. However, I passed a test and Chuck's relationship with me went to another place. All the, hardly ever saw him, but the power of it, the security of it. One more little story. A couple of years later, I get this heavenly revelation. I get woken by the Lord at 2am and he explains to me exactly why it was that Elisha could receive, that he was able to receive a double portion of Elisha's spirit. What was it about Elijah's heart? What had God done in his heart? Turned out he had really enlarged his heart to give him the capacity to receive it and the Lord told me how he had enlarged it. And you know what it was? It was enlarged with love and longing for his spiritual father, which explains why when Elisha's taken from him, they knew he was going to go and he's taken alive. He, he cries out, my father, my father. In that moment, his heart is rent and boom, in comes the double portion. And the Lord explained all this to me in the moment. I'm thinking, no one's going to believe this, you know. <laughs> longing, longing was the key, longing. But then I read in Paul of Timothy, how I long to see you with tears. I think, oh, this is the godly stuff in, in really mature Christian leadership, you know. Well, anyway, the Lord gives me these keys for, you know, it's long-term relationship, it's love, it's committed relationship with spiritual fathers, it's walking with them over years. And by this time I'm saying, Chuck's got these huge anointings. And I'm thinking, I'm entitled to this. See, because what you see, you're entitled to inherit. If the Lord opens your eyes to see it. 
And the more you love, the more you see. Well, so I sent, I preached it to my church and sent Chuck the tapes. Why? Because I want to go visit him, get him to pray for me, get this download, this double portion, right? And, uh, and then we arrange a visit, take us with me, and I get there, and he doesn't want to talk about it. You know, I'm, with him, I'm there a whole week, and I'm saying, you hear the tapes, yeah, you know. <laughs> I'm wanting to talk about it, get him to pray. whole week goes by, he won't talk about it, he doesn't offer prayer, nothing, right? So by this time, come Thursday morning, I get up, and, I'm, and, and he's not in the house, but I'm sitting in this big chair thinking, and I come to this point with the Lord, and I said, Lord, Chuck's not here to serve me. I'm here to serve him. And I said, if he never does anything for me in life, if I never receive another prayer, if I never receive a blessing, it's fine. I just release that to you. I'm not here to grasp. I'm not, I'm not here to, to manipulate anything. No, no, I just release it all to you. And as far as I'm concerned, from this point forward, I'm here to serve him. I will do anything for him. I'll love him. I'll bless him. And he doesn't have to bless me. And at that very moment, the phone rang and Chuck said, oh, would you come over to the office? He'd been up all night. The reason he was so quiet is he wanted to do this, but he couldn't figure out how to do it. He was up all night seeking the Lord how to pray for me. And he prayed for me. But when I got back to Australia a few days later and sat down and opened my Bible one morning to read, the Lord said two things. He said, you have a, a much higher cleanness in my eyes. And he said, from this time on, your day-by-day -day guidance will be much more close, much more clear. Listen, I'm telling you, the road to sonship, personal relationships, love, walking with spiritual fathers, being glued together from the heart in the church, it is the key to huge inheritance. Inheritance comes to sons, not orphans. You've got to be sons in the house. And then, of course, in turn, you also produce a posterity in the earth. That's what it's all about. It's all I have time to say. I'm going to pray for you. Ask the Lord to grant this house great blessing in uh, love and relationships. Father, I do thank you for the believers that meet right here in this house, meeting with Alan and all the others. And I praise God for them. I thank God for the, the city and the towns around here, this whole region. And Lord, we set our hearts to believe you're going to pour out your spirit. Demons are going to be cleaned out of this region more and more and more angels put in. And the light of the glory of God shine on this part of England. And so we bless this part of England in Jesus' name. And I bless this congregation and I bless the body of Christ in the city. And I ask you, Lord, that you'd breathe. Breathe on these brothers and sisters and breathe on their children and may this house become so filled with love. Yes. And not any love, but with deep respect for one another and such appreciation of each other. Let this house become a mutual admiration society. Wow. And may they be so strengthened together and walk with their leaders. Let, let the honor they show their leaders build those leaders up into great strength and to great holiness. And so I bless the house. And Alan, I bless you. And I bless all who are with you. May the Lord grant you grace and not only open your heart to receive many wonderful things from the Lord, but then open your mouth so that in turn, as you speak, even when you don't even know the importance of what you say, 
as a result of a spoken word, anointings will fall on your people. Power and grace will fall into their homes. We declare, Lord, this is the house of God. This is Bethel. Heaven is in this place. The heavens are open over this place. We declare it in Jesus' name. The Spirit of the Lord rest on Alan and upon all the people. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Please remember the giving of honour to leaders or to your leader actually causes the leader to become a bigger person. Not, not empty, really, genuinely a bigger person. You honour the, the faucet of God, you know, God opens the tap, stuff flows back to you. It's amazing how it works. Let's shut up.